we have Homestead Heights to be the greatest church in Durham, whether people might hear of us or our wonderful choir or our preacher. Our goal is that it might be to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We serve a God that is worthy of the most extravagant expressions of worship. And we serve, excuse me, we live in a world that is in need of the most extravagant efforts to reach them. So what we're going to talk about doing is relaunching our church. This is a new day at Homestead Heights. And we want to present ourselves to our community and want to present our message in a way that reaches Durham very effectively. And so the title kind of, of what we're doing tonight is the work relaunch. We already got a great church. We're just going to relaunch it for the community for their benefit. to go to our church and make a recommendation to relocate. To relocate when we didn't know where we were going yeah. and to sell a building that um, just by being a permanent location and facility represented memories and stability and, and that thought was frightening. <laughs> We saw that God was doing something that was bigger than, than that building. And we knew that it was gonna require some release on our part in order to see that happen. Our property did sell, and so we had to move, and we moved to Riverside. There was no, no land available, so we were there at Riverside for that couple of years in a row, two, three years. So we were praying. We were doing international missions. We were sending people on international mission trips. We started serving our community. 
and we were still looking for land. And then eventually we realized we had to expand that search. And that search ended up us looking down towards the Briar Creek area. So we had to come back to the church. Now we're asking them to relocate like 30 minutes away from their original location. A couple of weeks ago, we did a baptism in which we baptized 30 people. There were professionals from RTP that had come to Christ in our church. And this place that I'm standing on is the place that God is going to use us to reach hundreds, if not thousands of them. We were really led by the Spirit, I believe, being strategically placed to reach more of the triangle. I mean, we did, we really did make a good faith effort to stay where we were. We never, we never even thought that we were gonna become this, a regional church. That was, that was not on our radar. We were just trying to be faithful to reach the people where we all were. And, and we, because we couldn't find property, we had to keep bumping it out. We had bought some property over on Colmel Road that we had hoped to expand on, but we never got enough property around it. But it had a little church building that sat 200 people. And somebody on our staff, I think his name was J.D. Greer, got the idea that we could do this thing that was starting to get a little bit of popularity in church world called multi-site. And since we had a bunch of people who lived in North Durham near that property, maybe we could start, we could go to two campuses. People wondered, will people watch J.D. Greer on a video screen? And most of the older congregation lived in North Durham and were at that campus, and they never complained about seeing J.D. on the screen at all. They just wanted to know where Chris and the choir was. <laughs> the, the beautiful thing about it now is looking back, some of these strategic decisions that in the middle of it, because they weren't working out like we envisioned, they started to look like mistakes or did we miss here? And now you can look back and see that they weren't mistakes. They were points at which God was just doing something strategically different than what we understood or saw at the moment. And it wasn't our understanding that was crucial, it was our obedience. In the years that followed, God's Spirit has led us. The summit now meets in 11 locations, in multiple languages, and even in two of our local prisons. As we grew and multiplied, there were still times we gathered as one church in one location. Twice we came together for church at the ballpark, worshiping in the heart of downtown Durham. 850 people followed Christ in baptism. 850. Seven times we met for Christmas at Deepak, where thousands heard the gospel for the very first time. And most recently, nearly 7,000 of us gathered at the Red Hat Amphitheater in downtown Raleigh to celebrate Good Friday and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. From downtown Durham to downtown Raleigh, the vision was the same, reach people and preach the gospel. Homestead Heights had been founded with a passion for missions. We desperately wanted to return to that passion, and so we set another astounding goal, to plant a thousand churches by the year 2050. In the previous 40 years, we had planted just five, but the vision was catching. In the years since, we have planted 255 churches in RDU around the country and around the world, and we have sent over 1,000 of our people to do it. And as we turned outward, we also turned to our neighbors. We began to ask, where can we bring joy and healing to our city? In an effort to bless our neighbors, Serve RDU was born. 
was started with a handful of projects in a local school has now multiplied into a movement of hope throughout the Triangle. Wherever our neighbors are in need or in pain, we wanted to be there to shine the light of Christ's love. We are here at the Blue Ridge campus, which is one of my favorite campuses here at the Summit because um, just about four years ago, I was invited here uh, by some really amazing friends, and at the time, I did not know Jesus, um, but this is where I first heard the gospel. Clearly, it's where God first opened my eyes to who He is, and um, so I just love it here because I went from death to life here. So I'm a staff member here at Summit, and I have the privilege of working on a team that helps to launch campuses, uh, launch the Garner campus. Personally, it's, it's really important to me because a campus launch is the reason that I know Christ. Um, at a Blue Ridge pre-launch campus, um, that's where I was saved. So um, launching campuses is not something that we do because of a really nice building or um, really great things, but because people need to know Jesus and they need to know him in their community. Um, I think the two central things that the Summit Church showed at the beginning, which was an absolute commitment to put Jesus and his mission first, and then a surrender to do whatever God was telling us to do, that's what's got to be shown in our generation. We, we've had some times in our ministry where we really trusted God. But God's not done. He's not finished with what He wants to do. I mean, I think right now about the Triangle is just one of the most strategic places in the United States. People are pouring into it. And God has sovereignly put us here at this particular time for us to um, not do something for Him, not raise money and build a church for Him, but to, to listen to Him and to say yes to Him. Hey, I think about people that are gonna sit in this this building or children that are gonna be taught the gospel and the mission and, and right over there, who are gonna get a vision for the world and they're gonna take their lives to places where the gospel's not known and they're gonna see the gospel multiply. That's what really gets me excited is, it's that, is that Jesus has a plan for this church, Jesus has a plan for this community and he is beckoning us, he's inviting us and he's saying, put me first. Uh, put me first in your time, your talents and your treasures and just say yes, do what I tell you to do and watch me work wonders and miracles through, through you. The Summit's first 300 put their yes on the table, trusting an unknown future to a known God. Through their audacious faith, thousands of lives have been changed forever. But they didn't have to do this. They could have remained comfortable, but aren't we glad they took the risk? Aren't we the very fruit that they were praying to see? We are the next generation of warriors. We are the ones to look back and remember all God has done, to trust Him with the future and say, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. God didn't use them because of their money, their talents, or their wisdom. He used them because they had the courage to put their yes on the table. If God could do everything we've seen with 300 sold out, disciple-making disciples, what could He do with 11,000? In God's kingdom, the best is always ahead. Our past is only a shadow of our future, a whisper of things yet to come. Summit Church, the living God is among us. Remember all His marvelous deeds. Pray fervently. Surely He will do wonders in our midst. And so we ask, with hope, with trust, and with joy. If we put him first, what will he do next? Well, that was awesome. 
and a little embarrassing all at the same time. So, well, Summit Church, can you believe what God has done here in and through our church over the last 16 years? You just heard a little bit of the story of how this church began. Here is the question that I want us to consider in this season that we are about to go into. Does the spirit that characterized that first generation of Summit members, does that spirit still characterize this generation of Summit members? You see, churches like ours, when they get successful, so to speak, experience a natural inertia where we tend to move from mission to maintenance. And a lot of people end up coming to the church who have never really gone through some of the faith trials and some of those kind of um, stretching to believe God moments. And they've never bought into the spirit that initially birthed the movement. In churches like ours, you got a lot of people that are sitting on the sideline, assuming that somebody else is responsible to make it all happen. I, I, I've told you before that churches like ours tend to be a lot like an NC State football game. At an NC State football game, you got 22 guys in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 22,000 in desperate need of exercise. Uh, same group of people that, that you see at the fair, uh, right? And you just got people that are kind of watching in saying, well, I assume somebody else is doing this, but it's not really something that is, is on me. 16 years ago, Jesus and his kingdom were first to this church. And we expressed that commitment, the 300 of us that were here, we expressed that in two primary ways. Number one, we were committed to do whatever it took to reach the lost. We believe that Jesus's mission came first. It was first above our preferences and our priorities. And we said, whatever it takes to reach the lost, that's going to be our first commitment. The second way we express that is we were surrendered to do whatever we believe the Holy Spirit was telling us to do. Here we are sitting here now, a congregation of more than 11,000. We have seen, it is true, some amazing things in the last 16 years, um, right at six thousand people, just like Anna, uh, whose story you saw, have been baptized here at the Summit Church in the last 16 years. We have sent out nearly 1,100 members, uh, members uh, of our church who have uprooted from the triangle and moved out to one of our 255 church plants around the world. That is all because of that first initial 300's faith and commitment to Jesus and his mission. But here is the question again, does the faith and surrender that characterized that first generation, does it still characterize this one? Does it still characterize you? Because I believe, I believe with all of my heart that the greatest things that God wants to do through this church are still ahead of us. And I believe that as far as his intentions are, the best is yet to come for us. So to that end, we are starting a five-week series today through the book of Colossians called First. First, I chose Colossians because Paul's point in this great short little letter is that it ain't about you and it ain't about me. It's true. Jesus has done a lot of things for us, more than anybody else has ever done for us. But still, even after all he's done for us, it still ain't about us. Colossians chapter one, if you got your Bible, and I hope you brought it this weekend, and I hope you'll bring at least the book of Colossians every week for the next five weeks. Um, that is where we're going to be. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is the passage we'll be looking at today. For the next five weeks, we're just gonna work our way through this great short little letter. A few things that you ought to know about the letter itself. First, we know that it was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments. Paul spent extensive amounts of time in prison, 
Most of his adult life was in prison because he refused to shut up about the fact that Jesus was Lord and about the fact that he had risen from the dead. Second, we know that Paul had never actually met the Colossians. Um, a, a buddy of his named Epaphras had planted the church in Colossae and uh, Epaphras had shared with Paul a few things about the church that concerned Paul. And so Paul was writing this letter to a group of people he had never met to address the concerns that he had about them. Thirdly, it's a really straightforward letter. The apostle seems to have two primary concerns in mind. He is concerned, number one, because the believers in Colossae, by his judgment, seem to have been influenced by the culture around them in a way that has warped their understanding of God. Secondly, he is addressing in this letter their concern about why he is always in prison. Why, they wondered, why if Paul really was the messenger of God? Why was he always in prison? Why wasn't God protecting him? Why wasn't God delivering him? So Paul is writing this letter to explain to them why he was willing to suffer and to sacrifice for the gospel and why they should be as well. The city of Colossae, where the church of Colossians were, was a very fascinating place. It's a prosperous city tucked into a, a valley in the middle of modern day Turkey. It was part of the Roman empire. And so it was heavily influenced by Roman culture. Uh, and so when it came to religion, um, Rome, I've explained to you, had basically two rules for religion. Rule number one is you can worship whatever God you want. We don't care. Worship, worship the spaghetti monster in the sky. Worship, you know, try and worship. G it doesn't matter to us. The only rule, number two, you can worship any God you want. Number two is just don't say your God is the only God. Don't say your God is the best God. Don't say your God is the supreme God. Because if you say that your God is the best God, then you're probably gonna think that you're the best people and you're gonna wanna rule everybody. You're gonna wanna be in charge. And clearly we here in Rome, we are the ones that are in charge. So as with many Roman cities of the day, Colossae was filled with literally hundreds of temples and shrines to hundreds and thousands of gods. And the general mood in the city was, hey, hey, you know what? We got a lot of options here. Find the God that works for you. Even better, why don't you put together your own little, little combo from the smorgasbord of gods here we have in Colossae and, and just find one that works for you and, and satisfies all of your needs. It's what we now call a build-a-bear theology where you assemble the deity that makes you feel the best. Uh, well, you see the culture of Colossae that, that existed around them, it had infiltrated the church. And so the believers in Jesus there in Colossae had a lot of other rituals that they added to their faith in Jesus to ensure for themselves peace and prosperity. Think of it like a, a Jesus and mentality. They never outright rejected Jesus. They just thought that to their faith in Jesus, they would add other rituals, other beliefs, other practices they thought, they thought would guarantee for them or supply for them whatever they thought was lacking in Jesus. So here is what Paul says in response to this Jesus and mentality. Colossians 1 verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all of creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now stop for a minute and just ask yourself, what does that actually mean? What does that mean? Doesn't it mean that Jesus is God? Because God is the only uncreated thing, right? God's the only uncreated thing. And if Jesus created literally everything that has been created and Jesus was himself created, that would mean that Jesus would have had to have created himself and that would be impossible. So therefore he must be God. You follow the logic of that? Do I need to slow that down and do that again? The only uncreated thing is God, fair? 
right? Well, if Jesus created everything that was created and Jesus was himself created, that would mean that Jesus would have had to have created himself and that would be impossible. Therefore, Jesus has to be the uncreated God, right? You follow that? That, that, That's what Paul is saying there. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is God. In fact, scholars point out that the text of Colossians 1 is very similar to what we find in Genesis 1 because Paul is trying to show you that the creator work at force in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, that word, that voice that was speaking was Jesus himself. That word firstborn there in that first uh, verse there, that sometimes throws people off because they're like firstborn. That sounds like the first thing that God created was Jesus, but that's not what the word firstborn means there. Um, they think of it like uh, Karis uh, is my firstborn. That means that she is the first human that Veronica and I created. In 2002, she did not exist. In 2003, she did. And they think, well, Jesus was the first thing God created. But firstborn in Greek, um, uh, it can mean a couple of different things. And one of the things it can mean is position. In fact, the Greek word that we translate firstborn is where we get our word prototype. What Paul was saying is that Jesus is the prototype of creation. He is the template on which all of creation was made, and he is the purpose for which the creation itself exists. In in a few verses, uh, Paul is going to say that Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead. Now, if you know your Bible, you're like, wait wait, wait a minute, was Jesus the first one that was resurrected from the dead? No, Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. Lots of other people were resurrected from the dead in the Old Testament. So why would you say Jesus is the firstborn of the dead? Well, it's because he's the prototype of of us who are raised from the dead. All of us who are raised from the dead are going to follow in the pattern of Jesus. He is the prototype of creation. He's the prototype of, of, of the resurrection. Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of other people in our society teach that Jesus was a great man. He was a great moral teacher, maybe even a great prophet, but they react strongly, sometimes violently when you say that Jesus is God. You wanna know why? Here's why, because there's something inherently threatening about Jesus being divine. If Jesus was a created being, even if he was a super strong, super wise being, then you could look at him as a dispenser of good moral advice that you can just put alongside the other great religious leaders. And you can try to take from him some things that are valuable to your life. And you can put together this smorgasbord of of a religious package that works for you. But if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the creator of everything and the purpose for which they were created, then the rules are altogether different. That means that he is the center of everything and everything else is measured by him. Listen to me, according to Paul, you were created by Jesus for Jesus. You need to let that sink in for a minute. My kids and I were discussing this the other night in our family devotions because we were going through this passage. And I asked them, I was like, were you created by mom and dad? Were you created for mom and dad? Is it mom and dad's purposes that are the most important thing in your life? Were you created for a job? Was I created for the summit church? No, I was created by Jesus for Jesus, which means my primary purpose is to know him, to discover his will, and then to live it out. And what that also means is that I will never actually be satisfied regardless of how successful or how prosperous I am in any area of my life until I am in right relationship with him and discovering and living out his will. Because see, he is before all things. He's before all things, including this slide. He's before all things and by him, all things hold together. You know, last year I read this book, that explained that many physicists are still baffled, still confused as to how the 
the nucleus of the atom holds together. Now, let me be very clear. I am not a physicist. I am certainly not a nuclear physicist. But this book explained, it's a really smart book written for people of mediocre intelligence like me. And it explained that the nucleus of the atom holds what? Neutrons and protons, right? Neutrons have no charge, protons have a positive charge. And when you put positively charged things together, they should drive themselves apart. Like when you put two positive magnets together, it drives them apart. And so literally the nucleus of every atom should be driving itself apart and unraveling creation. But there is something, they say, something we don't quite know what it is that holds the positive charges together and holds them together. And we don't know what to call it. So the only name they have for it is the stronger force. That's what they call it. The stronger force that holds it together. Now, let me be very clear. I am not trying to say to you, I'm not trying to say to you that it is the the naked hand of God that holds the atom together. I've seen some physicists speculate that, but I'm not saying that. Maybe God is built into the quarks or the gluons or the electrons or whatever else is in there. Maybe it is, he's built in some natural force that overcomes the electromagnetic forces. And one day we'll figure that out. But my point is, is that some incredibly strong force holds literally the nucleus of every atom together, even when it looks to us like the nucleus should fly apart. In the same way, Paul says, God holds all of history and he holds your life together, keeping it from unraveling. He sustains creation. He holds it together, keeping natural forces from destroying everything. He is also, Paul says, the head of the body, the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. There it is. So that he might, here's your phrase, come to have the first place in, say church, everything, everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Everything, the fullness of God, everything that God was, Jesus was. The fullness dwelled in him and through him, through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. Here is my short summation of Paul's logic in these five verses. First, Jesus is first. He's the creator of everything, the template on which they are made and the one for whom they were made. The point is that Jesus is not one of many beautiful things that God created. He's the creating force and purpose behind them all. Secondly, Paul says, Jesus went first. Jesus is first. Jesus went first. Um, This God, Paul says, pursued a relationship with us when we weren't looking for him, when we had betrayed him and rejected him, he chased us to a bloody cross where he voluntarily was humiliated and tortured for us. You know, in any other story, how would this have happened? I mean, God who created everything with a word, Paul says, literally could have wiped the slate clean and spoke it all back into existence and been none the poorer for it. That God, after we had humiliated and spurned and rejected him, instead of doing that, that God chose to enter into history and redeem us even at the cost of his humiliation and his pain and his death. That is Paul's like, I don't understand that. He is first and then he went first. I, um, when I was 19 years old, I, had a, I took a class by a guy named Charles Ryrie. Now that may not, name may not mean a lot to some of you, but he was like the most famous theologian in the 1980s and 1990s. He wrote all kinds of theology books that I still have in my library. In fact, the most famous study Bible, the 80s and 90s was the Ryrie Study Bible. Some of you still have that Bible. By the way, in Christian author world, when you get your name on a Bible, that's varsity, okay? So he had the most popular study Bible. Um, when I took this class from him, he was older than dirt. I mean, he was like, I, I felt like he was 190 years old or something like that. And he sat up there real, I mean, just 
I mean, it was like, I was like, this might be his last class. And so I'm sitting there, I mean, really, you know, and so I'm sitting there and, and, uh, and our, he gets to this part, he's going through the gospel of Matthew and he, he comes to this part where Jesus begins to go toward the cross. And all of a sudden he just sort of locks up and you can look up there and I could see his throat. You could see his throat kind of like, you know, kind of buckled up. And then you see these tears start coming out of his eyes. And I remember this theologian who, as far as I was concerned, had heard Jesus utter the words of the Great Commission. Um, you know, he, he, this theologian looks out at us and he just says, God dying for man, who could possibly understand this? And then he just moved on and went on to the next thing. And here I'm at the, the, the most incredible theological mind of our generation that is just looking at this saying, who could understand this? Jesus is first. Then Jesus went first and he pursued us. Paul says, therefore, we should put Jesus first in our lives. That kind of God can never be one on a list of gods. He can never be one on, on, on a list of priorities in your life. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. That means that he's not just an important chapter in the story of my life. Jesus is the book in which all the other chapters are written. He's not one on a list of priorities because he is first and because he went first. He's the page on which every other priority that I've ever had in my life is written. Jesus exists in a class all by himself. In fact, um, in later in the um, first century, actually toward the um, beginning of the second century, um, there's a famous story about one of the Roman emperors that had decided that the Christians had gotten so numerous, there were so many of them, no use trying to stamp them out anymore. So he tried to make peace. And he said, okay, um, I'll let you Christians exist and whatever, but we're gonna put a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon. Now, you know, the Pantheon was that, that thing in Rome where they had statues to all the Greek gods right, and all the Roman gods. And so um, you gotta imagine there, there's first Christians, right? They're a ragtag group of, you know, they got no money, started in the backwoods Israel by a bunch of fishermen with no education. Now the Roman emperor knows who they are and the Roman emperor is inviting them to put a statue of Jesus in the pantheon. How, how do you think they reacted? You think like, whoa, are you kidding me? Man, look at us. Look how far we've come. One of our guys in Congress, one of our guys up there in the pantheon. Now the story goes that they sent a letter back to the emperor and said, you will not put a statue of Jesus in the pantheon. If you do put a statue of Jesus in the pantheon, we will tear it down. And if you put it back up, we will tear it down again. And as long as there are any of us still alive, there will never be a statue of Jesus in the Pantheon because right on the top of the Pantheon is a little symbol that says Caesar is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that position is the one that is occupied by Jesus. He will never be one of your many gods. Jesus is above all of them. He is the source of all of them. He is not one among many. He is the only one. Now, what Paul is trying to say is that what is true in their theology, what is true in their theology should also be true in their lives, that he might be, that he might come to have the first place in, say it church, everything. He got to have the first place in everything. Jesus is not somebody that you just put on a list of priorities. He's not somebody that's just important to you. He is the list himself. He is everything. He's in a class all by himself. I think about this sometimes analogous to how I think about my wife. I've never gone to my wife and said, hey, sweetheart, just want you to know, on my list of women, you're really important. You're number one on my list of women. Now so-and-so down at the office, she's number two, and this other person, she's number three. Of course not. My wife would tear that list up and say, I ain't gonna be on no list. 
I'm either the only one on this list or I'm not gonna be there at all. Well, see, if that's true in my relationship with my wife, how much more so with Jesus, the son of God, who is my creator and the reason for whom I was created. He's why I exist. You were created by him and for him. That means he can never merely be an important commitment in your life. He's gotta be first. Some translations say preeminent. I love the word preeminent. It's an old fashioned word, King James Version. It's how I memorized the verse. It means he's the foundation, he's the center, he's the point, he's the trajectory, he's all of it. Here's my question for you in this season. Does Jesus hold that position in your life? Or is he simply one of your many priorities? In other words, is Jesus important to you? Or is he first? I know he's important to you. That's why you're here. That's why you come to church. I know he is important to you. Is he important to you or is Jesus first? 16 years ago at this church, there was a group of people, 300 of us, that said Jesus and his mission is gonna be first. It's not just important to us. It's going to be first and best in our lives. And like I said, that was expressed in two primary ways. We'll do whatever it takes to accomplish his mission. That'll be first. And then we will do whatever he tells us to do. But like I explained, here's what happens when churches like ours get big and settled, so to speak. We experience a natural inertia. We move from mission to maintenance and we go from being reckless in the mission to being comfortable in the institution. I saw a chart recently that really, really disturbed me when I think about our church in light of it. Somebody shared it with me um, about another um, uh, movement. And they said, um, it's the difference in the first generation and the second generation of a movement. Um, This is true whether you're looking in the Bible or whether you're looking all the way through history. First generation and second generation. I've edited the chart a little bit, but here it is. Let me me walk you through it. I know it's a lot up here, but I, I want you to think about first generation, second generation. The first generation, their attitude is, we'll do whatever it takes. The second generation says, I'll only do what I'm asked to do. And only if I've asked really nicely and only if it's really convenient for me and my family. The first generation assumes personal responsibility for the mission. The second generation assumes somebody else will do it. I mean, there's 11,000 of us here. Somebody else will take care of that. Why aren't they taking care of it? What are we paying these people for? Um, third, uh, the first generation expects personal sacrifice. They come in believing that's what it is. The second generation expects personal comfort. The first generation sees problems and innovates solutions. The second generation sees problems and complains. First generation sees possibilities and dreams about what could be. The second generation sees barriers and reasons to quit. First generation hears the voice of God firsthand and they own the vision. The second generation inherits the vision secondhand and questions every decision. Why didn't you do that? And this one didn't work for me and it'll work for my family. I'm going somewhere else. First generation steps out with bold, reckless faith in God. The second generation sits satisfied in the stability of the institution. The first generation feels privileged to be a part of the movement. The second generation feels entitled to the benefits of the institution. Here is the question. Which of those two lists better describe you? Let me give you a story, an example from the first generation that I think captures it. Um, I've told this story here before, but it's one of my favorite memories of that first year. Um, There was another guy at this church named Tim Jackson, who is still here. Um, and I started a basketball ministry on Monday nights because the facility we were originally in had a, had a gym. So we just opened it up for guys in the community to come. And immediately a bunch of guys who were more athletic and a lot younger than I showed up, but we, and we kept playing. Um, I led one of them to Christ. He was 6'5". Um, he was, his nickname was Air because they all had nicknames for each other because he could dunk like a fool. 
So his name was Ayer. There's another guy whose uh, nickname was Money because he never missed a three-pointer. One guy whose nickname was Street because he was so fast. My nickname, I kid you not by then, my nickname was No Don't Shoot. Uh, that was their name for me, No Don't Shoot. Um, but I got to know this guy and his girlfriend, and I led them both to faith in Christ and uh, baptized them in our church. Um, as far, at least as far as I could remember, um, it was the first African-American we'd ever baptized in our church. He got up there and he gave the most incredible testimony about how God had brought him from darkness to light. And there was hardly a dry eye in the place when he got done. And uh, so after the service was over, I was out in the lobby and one of our older members comes up to me, uh, older members comes up to me and he says, he pulls me aside. He says, son, he says, son, you know, I don't like a lot of these changes you're making in our church, right? And I kind of hung my head because I was like, oh, where is this going? And then I look up at him and he kind of, he just stands there for a minute and he's all like choked up and I see tears in his eyes and he points toward the baptistry. He says, but if that's what we're going to get right there, you can count me in for all of them. That's first generation faith right there, right? And that first generation faith is why you're sitting here today. I got a bunch of emails on file from the last four, three or four years that would characterize second generation faith, okay? My question is, which one better characterizes you? Because second generation faith is death to a movement. Every time. We need first generation faith because God is not finished with this church. There is still a rapidly growing city around us and there are new generations of college students and high school students coming in every single year. And there are all kinds of children growing up in our children's ministry. And there are churches that are yet to be planted and there are people that are yet to be reached and families that are still coming here. It's gonna take first generation faith to reach them. Oh, I, I've been sharing this with some of our pastors and leaders and, and one of them um, uh, talked to me recently and he said, I'm realizing now that all the benefits that I enjoy here at this church is because of somebody else's bold, sacrificial, audacious faith. He said, but I was reading how um, Moses, when Moses in the Old Testament transitioned leadership to Joshua, Joshua had to have his own experience with God. Joshua had to hear from God and own this vision for himself with a first generation faith. He said he had to go in the promised land on his own faith, not Moses's. He said that promised land for this church are all these people that God has given us to reach and the new things that he wants us to do. And Moses's faith, while it was awesome, is not going to be sufficient to guide us into the promised land to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through us. And then he says this, and I quote, we need to be the second wave of the first generation. We need to show the same first generation faith that they showed. Y'all listen to me. I believe this is a matter of life and death for this church. I think this is a matter of life and death for this community. The faith of the previous generation was awesome. Praise God for it. But it is not enough to take us into the future and into the places God wants for us. So let me ask you to consider personally, all right? I'm gonna ask you to consider this personally. Number of two questions in light of that first 300. Number one, what is getting your first and best? What's getting your first and best? Is it the mission of Jesus? Remember, Paul says Jesus should have the first place in everything. That means he should have the first place in your heart, your, your affections. He should be the one you love the most, that you think about the most, that you care about and are passionate about the most. He should have the first place in your obedience. That means that what he wants should be the first consideration in anything that you do. He should be the first place in your priorities. That means that his agenda should rule your life, right? At this church, we say that that will express itself in three primary ways. First, he will be first in your time. 
Does Jesus get the first and best of your time? You parents, do you spend more time teaching your kids how to throw a slider or, or, or how to know and follow Jesus? Do you spend more time worrying about climbing the workplace ladder than you do seeking Jesus, knowing his will and living it out? Or how about this? Of all your weekly commitments, when things get tight, when things get hard, is it your commitments to the kingdom of God? Are they the ones that are the first to go? I'm thinking things like small group and volunteering and whatever ministry God's got you involved in. He's supposed to be first in your time. Is he first in your secondly talents? Your time, your talents. When you think about your talent and your career, does the kingdom of God get the first consideration? Now, I'm not gonna press real deep into this because I uh, spent a whole sermon on this um, a couple weeks ago going through this, but God gave you that talent for a reason. He gave you that talent for a reason because your workplace is a mission field. Yeah, you're gonna use that talent to provide for you and your family, and I'm sure you enjoy it, but your talent is a key to get you into a mission field that nobody else can get into, and you've gotta start seeing your job as a means to get into a place to bring the gospel to people. And you're supposed to use the financial benefits of your job first and foremost for the interest of his kingdom and not just your own, which leads me to the third element. In your time, first in your time, first in your talents, first in your treasure. For the next few weeks, we are going to ask the question through the lens of Colossians about our treasures. Who or what is getting the first and the best of our treasures? You see, think about, think about what you do with your money. Think about it in two categories. One category, we've got the first and best category. And then the other category, you've got the good enough category. And for those of us who have a limited income, usually we are willing to deal with good enough in some areas so that we can have the best in other areas. And that's what we kind of focus on first. Let me explain what I mean in case that's unclear. Imagine a couple in their late 20s, early 30s. They're standing outside of a house that a real estate agent has taken them to see that is just a little beyond their price range. Cause that's what real estate agents like to do, right? They like to take you to the upper limit and then just a little bit farther. And so here you stand out in front of this house and the conversation goes like this. A bunch of you have had this conversation. This, I'm not judging you, I'm just saying. Um, you've been there and you're like, oh, this house is awesome. We want this house. Man, can you imagine our family in this house? It's gonna be so good for our family, but it's a little beyond where we are. And one of you says, yeah, I think we can do this. I think we can do it. But in order for us to do it, everything else is gonna have to change. We're not gonna be able to upgrade our cars for the next few years. We're not gonna be able to go on vacation like we wanted to go on vacation. We're gonna stop eating out all the time. We can't go to Starbucks three times a day. We're gonna have to cut our Netflix things back from four screens to two screens. This is gonna be bad, okay? So it's just, we're gonna go good enough here so that we can go first and best over here. Does that make sense? Or uh, picture another couple in their maybe late 40s, early 50s, maybe late 50s and they've just finished the applications for their kid to go to college and they get that tuition bill that there is no other word honestly to describe that than ungodly. And they're looking at that thing and they're like, how can they charge that much for to go to school? And then you're like, this is like the national debt. How can anybody pay this? Right? And you think, well, and then the conversation happens and it sounds like this. I don't know, we just, I really want, I really want little Mikey to have the greatest possible launch into life. And if this school is going to help him get launched in his career, we want him to go to the best school he can get into. And he got into this one. So I think we can do this, but everything else is going to have to change. So we're not going to be, you know, sweetheart, you're not going to be able to get that Audi you've been looking forward to when you traded in your minivan and, and, and started driving. You're not going to be able to do that right now. 
And we're not going to be able to go to Hawaii next year to celebrate our empty nester life that we were always going to do. And we're not going to be able to, you know, move into the country club. Whatever it is you're putting in that category. We're going to have to stay with good enough so that our child gets the first and the best. Now, let me be very, very, very clear with you, all right? There's nothing wrong with putting some things first in your family, okay? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about that. My question is why we rarely, if ever, ask that light, ask that question in light of the kingdom of God, in light of our giving. We never seem to have the conversation that goes like this. Now we can do this. We can do what we think Jesus is leading us to do in his kingdom. But if we do it, everything else is gonna have to change. We never have that conversation, it seems like. Instead, what we ask is, how much can we afford to give after all these other commitments have been fulfilled? They come first, the kingdom of God comes after, after we get the kind of house that we wanna live in, after we go on the vacations that we think our family would really enjoy, after we drive the kind of cars that we want and after we get the kind of clothes that we wanna wear and after we achieve the lifestyle that we've always wanted to live and after we send our kids to the colleges we want them to go to, after all these things, we ask what can we afford to give from the leftover to God? Paul says, Jesus does not deserve your leftovers. He is first, he went first, he deserves the first place in everything. He's not a leftover kind of God, he's a first place kind of God. Hey, have you ever been invited to somebody's house and they served you leftovers for dinner? Has that ever happened? Right, I mean, you could walk in there and it's like, you know, mashed potatoes and a morning's bacon and limp fritz fries. You know, the food just ain't no good. I mean, the macaroni soggy, the peas are mushed and the chicken tastes like wood. Little rapper's delight, anybody, come on. 80s rap is the best rap. Shame on y'all for not knowing that, okay? <laughs> if that really happened, if you got invited to somebody's house for dinner and they served you leftovers, how would that make you feel? You would feel insulted because you knew that that meal was originally first prepared for somebody else and it was only a secondhand thought for you. If, or if you had somebody famous coming over to your house. My kids and I discussed this the other night. We we're going through this and I was like, okay, who's the most famous celebrity that we could ever imagine you know, inviting to our house? And I was, of course, looking for them to say Nicolas Cage. But my kids said, no, Zac Efron. Because they like The Greatest Showman. And they're like, Zac Efron, that would just be awesome. And I was like, okay, let's imagine that Zac Efron was coming for dinner. Well, do you think we would serve him leftovers? Are we gonna go through, here's some leftover bologna and here's some stuff we didn't eat this week and put that in front of him? No, if we want to honor him, we're going to give him the best meal. We're gonna give him the first. Y'all, let me be clear. Jesus does not deserve your leftovers. He is first, he went first, he should be first in our lives. So what I'm trying to say is this, I do not think this season is about us getting, you getting to a good enough level of giving or a good enough percentage in your life. Instead, I want you to ask yourself, and I ask this without apology, I want you to ask yourself, what is that level of giving that declares unequivocally that Jesus is first and that his kingdom is best in my life, that he has the preeminence. And I know that some of us are sitting there and I used to be like this and I've been a member of a church for a long time before I was a pastor. And you're like, well, I just don't like it when churches, when they, talk about, when they talk about money. Let me be very clear to you. God does not want your money. God does not need your money. God is after a whole lot more than your money. He's after all of you. And that certainly includes your money, which is why Jesus talked about money more than any other subject. Because he knew that as long as your firstness in, as long as his firstness in your life didn't affect your money, then it was all just words and a sham. 
So he would say, if you really wanna know where the rubber meets the road of what's really first in your life, you follow the trail of your checkbook. He didn't do that because he needed money. He did that because he knew that what is really first in your heart will show up in that area. So I am saying to you in this season, not because God needs money, but because God deserves our heart and our first and our best, what does your giving show is the first and the best thing in your life. Let me make it really, really personal to you, uh, for, for, for you, for my wife and I. As we've been kind of processing this over the last three or four months, we've realized that our giving over the last three or four years has kind of begun to settle into the good enough category. Now, let me be clear. I, I think it's good enough. I'm not embarrassed by it. Uh, if you knew the amount, if you knew the percentage, I would say it's exemplary. I would, I would feel good about it. I wouldn't be ashamed in it. But we are asking in this season, does it still declare that Jesus and his kingdom are first to us? I want something that unequivocally declares to him, you're the best, you're the reason we exist. And if you hadn't chose to come from heaven to earth to save us, us and our kids would be lost and we would have no future. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I want something that declares that, that Jesus is not just important to us. He's not one of our many priorities, but he is first. Or here's another way we're thinking about it. I've used this analogy before to capture it. When you sit down to a breakfast of bacon and eggs in the morning, both the chicken and the pig had a part in bringing that breakfast to you. The chicken made a contribution, a very generous contribution. The pig, the pig went all in, <laughs> right? The chicken is not really changed for the experience. This is more of a transaction. The chicken gets up the next day and makes another contribution. The pig, however, is fundamentally transformed by the experience of providing you breakfast. My wife and I do not want to be chickens in our giving. We want to be pigs for Jesus, okay? And you've never heard that before and now you got it. We don't want merely to make a generous contribution. We wanna be fundamentally transformed by the experience because we establish Jesus as the unchallenged first and best in our lives, getting therefore the first and best in our finances. So we wanna come up with a number that unequivocally declares Jesus is first. He is first, he went first, therefore, we're going to put him first. Here's my challenge to you in this season. Does your giving say leftovers or does it say Lord? Now, maybe you're sitting there right now and you're saying, JD, hold on a minute. Just wait, wait, wait. I'm in an entirely different place. I'm not thinking about nice clothes and new cars and expensive colleges for my kids to go to. I mean, I can barely afford to pay the bills. My kids eat cereal with a fork to save milk. When I go to the park, ducks, when I go to the park, ducks throw bread at me. That's how poor we, our family is right? You're like, I just lost my job. I'm not thinking about any of this other stuff. Y'all, for you also, there's a place for you to put Jesus first. Jesus says unequivocally in his word that if you will seek and prioritize him first, then all the rest of the things that you need in life, he will provide for you. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, put him in obedience to him first. And hey, I promise all these other things, I'll take care of you. Best um, illustration, best application I've ever seen of that. Um, there's a, a pastor, older pastor named David Jeremiah. Um, who said that there was a couple at his church who came to him and said, hey, we really want to obey Jesus in this and give him our first and our best, which for them was the first 10%, um, uh, the, the tithe. And so, and he said, but we just can't afford it. I mean, there's no way we can make ends meet if we, if we do this. And so Pastor Jeremiah said, I looked back at them and I said, all right, I tell you what, I understand that, I understand your struggle. What if you, what if you wrote out a check for what the first and the best was, the first, you know, in their case, the first 10%. What if you wrote that check out, gave it to me, 
I'll put it in an envelope. I'll seal the envelope. I'll put it in the front desk of my drawer, the, desk of my, um, the, the, the top drawer of my desk, and I won't cash it until the end of the month. And if at the end of the month, you can't make ends meet, if you come back to me and ask me for it back because you can't afford it, I will get it, take it out. I won't cash it. You can tear it up and that'll be the end of it. Does that sound fair to you? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that, that's reasonable. He said, you would trust me to hold that check? And they said, of course. He said, look back at them. And I said, shame on you because you just declared you trust your pastor more than you trust Jesus because that's what Jesus said we could do. He said, if we give him the first and the best, he promised to make all these things abundant for us. So my question is for all of you, at whatever stage you find yourself, what is getting your first and your best? What, what unequivocally declares this is first and best in my life? Here's the second question. Am I listening to the Holy Spirit? Am I, am I obeying him? Y'all, in the book of Acts, when the church was growing explosively, all you had was a group of people without any money, without any resources, just listening to and obeying the Holy Spirit. That's all they had. I mean, they weren't impressive. God didn't look at that original group of disciples and say, well, I got some resources right there. Man, what can I do with that group of people? It's just a group of people who said, okay, where do you want us to go? You don't want us to build a church for you. You want us to build, you want to build a church through us. And you can do more with just our obedience than you could with all the resources in the world. And what you see in the book of Acts is this incredible story of how a group of people with no influence and no money and nothing impressive literally launched the greatest awakening, the greatest movement in history. And it all come from saying, what do you want us to do? We're a blank check. You tell us. One moment, my favorite example of this, um, it's in Acts. Acts 8. You know, Jesus had told the early church that he wanted the gospel preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, right? Pretty clear. By the end of Acts chapter 8, Gospel's still only in Jerusalem. The apostles are just hanging out in Jerusalem. They haven't been able to get the gospel out of Jerusalem. They're hanging out, small groups, singing Kumbaya, you know, eating s'mores. That's, that, that's kind of their, their existence. So the Holy Spirit speaks to an ordinary guy, not one of the apostles, an ordinary guy named Philip. And he moves Philip to go up to the middle of nowhere, this little dusty crossroads where there's nothing but a blinking, you know, a flashing light and a, a gas station and just tells him he wants him to live there, stay there. Philip doesn't know why he's there. All of a sudden, a guy comes along the road in a little caravan of chariots that we now refer to as the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah and he doesn't know what he's reading. So Philip gets him into the chariot and explains to him, this is all about Jesus, leads him to faith in Christ and baptizes him. Eusebius, who was the third century church historian, Eusebius says that Ethiopian eunuch went back to sub-Saharan Africa where he was from, Okay, went back to Sub-Saharan Africa where he was from and he planted a church and launched a church planting movement that is still in existence today. The Holy Spirit through one act of obedience by an untrained, unfunded, unresourced guy accomplished more for the Great Commission than all the apostles with all their talent had been able to accomplish in eight chapters. That's what we're talking about when we say obedience to the Holy Spirit. God is not looking at this congregation of 11,000 saying, wow, man, look what I did with 300. Imagine what I could do with 11,000. God is not sitting in heaven thinking about all he wants to do for the triangle and bringing in the Summit Church's resources into his balance sheet. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your cattle. He wants more than your cattle. He wants all of you. And what he says is I can do it with 300. I can do it with 11,000. The amount is not the point. It is the, it is the, the state of the heart. 
Are you giving me your first and your best? And are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Do you really feel like you're being moved by the Holy Spirit when it comes to your giving and your service and your sacrifice? Have you heard from the Holy, have you ever even asked him? God, what do you want from me in this season? That is what this season is about. And as I said, I think the future, I think the future of our church depends on how we respond in this moment. So on your way out today, you're gonna receive a couple of things. First thing you're gonna receive is this book, first book. This is a resource we have put together that um, lays out just sort of the, 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 the bullet points of, of, after, of what we believe God is calling us to as a church over the next few years. Um, after seeking God and prayer and in some cases fasting, how we've just felt like this, God, this is where we think you're telling us to go. And then what it does is it guides you through both in your personal Bible study time and in your small group, um, ways that you can go deep in this and really wrestle with these questions. I want you to get one of these. I want you to start to peruse it this week. And listen, I want you to bring it back every week for the next four weeks because there's a place in it for sermon notes and we're gonna actually work our way, you know, we're gonna have time for you to do this. And so when we get done with this, you're gonna have thoroughly gone through Colossians and gone deep into these questions. The other one is this little, um, it's what we call a commitment card, which is just a tool that'll help you ask these questions in a very personal way with your family. I don't want you to turn it in this week. Um, there'll be a time at the end of this that we do that. Right now, I just want you to get it and start wrestling with it and start praying through it and just letting the Holy Spirit begin to work on your heart. My wife and I have started this process three or four months ago and we've revisited it and looked at it and prayed about it. And we're just asking God to show us what he wants us to do on this. Yes, listen, there's gonna be a number goal on it, but I don't want you to get fixated on that number goal because that's not what this is primarily about. We are doing this because Jesus deserves our first and our best. And I just would say that for many of us, that may no longer be the case. Put it this way. If somebody this week calls me and says, I'm gonna write you a check for $75 million. It's Zac Efron, here's this message and says, I'll come to your house for dinner and I was so moved by that. I'll write you a check for $75 million. If that's the case, and we literally have no more financial needs for the next two years, we will still do this because this is not about us meeting the financial needs of God. This is about us offering the first and our best of our hearts to Jesus because that's who he is and that's what he deserves. Does that make sense? So I want you to, to wrestle with something, not because you're trying to meet financial needs, but because you are going to definitively declare that Jesus is the first and the best. Listen, you know, I look back with a, a lot of affection, a lot of affection and a lot of fond memories toward that original group of 300. When they had weird haircuts and, and, and wore sunglasses at the wrong time, but, but they were courageous. They were courageous and they were selfless. But listen to me, in large part, their day has passed. Some are still here. Some of them have gone on to be with Jesus, but some of them are still here. But the point is that this is a new generation. It's a new wave in our church. It's the second wave of the first generation. Look around, everybody at every campus, now just sort of look around. Not in a weird, awkward kind of way, but just look around, okay? Will this group of people, will this generation, will the people who were seated around you, will the people who are up here on this stage, will they offer themselves anew and afresh to God for what God wants to do next? No, I do not believe God is done. I believe there is still more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 of us who belong to him. I don't believe God looks at the 11,000 and says, wow, that's awesome. 
I believe instead what God is thinking about is the 100,000 people that move into the triangle, new people every single year from all over the, the nation and all over the world. And I believe he put this church here at this time for his purposes to be able to preach the gospel to them and show them that there's salvation found in Jesus Christ. There are still so many stories to be written. There are so many lives that need to be impacted. And it all has to do with whether we embrace first-generation faith and hear from and respond to God in this season. Now, listen, maybe this is your first time here and you're thinking, man, I sure picked a weird weekend to come and visit the Summit Church. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But maybe, just maybe, maybe God brought you here on this weekend and it wasn't an accident. Maybe he brought you here to join us. Maybe God wants you to join this movement and jump in and be a part of it. For all of you, I'm going to invite all of you at whatever stage you're at to come back here for the next four weeks as we unpack this together. All sermon series are important, all of them, but, but this one is especially so. So I want to ask you if at all possible that you prioritize being here for every single week of this series. This is a pivotal I believe defining moment in the future of our church that has the potential to reshape our church and in many ways the triangle for the next two decades. And I want you to be a firsthand personal part of it. By the way, our leaders and our volunteers have already begun this journey. If you're in that category, leader, volunteer, elder, then I wanna remind you that next Sunday evening, October 28th, we're having an advanced commitment night at the Apex campus. Our leaders and volunteers are gonna go first and committing themselves to this. Now, if you're like, well, I'm not in that category of volunteer leader, but I might want to be, you are welcome to join us. You really are. We want you to come, but you have to RSVP at summitrdu.com slash first. All right, so we invite you to come, but you, you got to do that. Now, here's what I want us all to do from here as we, as, we, as we leave today. First thing I want you to do is I want you to make sure you get this book, and I want you to start pressing into it and working through it in your small group and in your time with God. Second thing I want you to do, okay, is your second action step is you're like, well, I'm not in a small group. All right, great. I want you to join a small group today at our Next Steps tent at every campus. They're ready. They're ready to get you connected to a small group today to a group of non-awkward, socially adept people today. Only today does that guarantee um, take place, okay? If you do it some other time, I can't promise. But today, all non-awkward, socially that people. Um, we want you to get connected to a small group today. What a great time to just sort of plunge in and, 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 and get deeper involved in the church and go through this journey together. So that's what I want you to do, okay? I wanna end with this question. I wanna end with this question that I asked at the very beginning. Does the spirit that characterized that first generation of Summit members, does it still characterize us, this generation? 16 years ago, 16 years ago, I asked, the 300, if they were ready to put Jesus first and ready to do whatever he told them to do, I asked them to signify that by standing. I'm gonna ask you to do that. Here we are 16 years later. I'm gonna ask you to do the exact same thing. In just a minute, I'm gonna ask you to stand if you're ready to say, Jesus, I want you to be first in every part of my life and everything, my time, my, my talents, my treasures. I may not know the particulars yet of what that looks like. I don't, I don't know that yet, but I'm ready I'm ready to put you first. I'm ready to put my yes on the table and listen. I'm surrendered to do whatever you're gonna tell me to do. 16 years ago, I asked a group of 300, I said, if you don't know what that looks like yet, but if you're willing to put him first and do whatever he tells you to do, I want you to signify that by standing. 
So I'm gonna ask you now today at all of our campuses, if you're ready for that, you're like, okay, I'm ready to put Jesus first. I'm ready to do what he tells me to do. I don't know what that is yet, but my yes is on the table. Right now at all of our campuses, if that's you, I'm gonna pray over us. Would you just stand to your feet and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to put Jesus first. I'm ready to put my yes on the table and be willing to do what he tells me to do. All right? And if you're not standing up, nobody's judging you. I'm just, you. but those of us that are standing, I'm gonna pray over us, okay? Father, I pray that this would be a season where you really establish yourself as the first and best in our heart. Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church, what you're saying to us individually about what it looks like to be the first and the best in our lives. And that this would be a moment where you take what we offer and you do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think for your glory in the church and your salvation among all peoples. We ask that God in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, well, everybody's standing here. You're probably not expecting. I'm gonna ask right now for all of our pastors and prayer leaders to come down at every single one of our campuses. This is the most important part of our service. This is a time when we're here just to pray for you. Maybe you got a financial need. Maybe it's a physical healing burden. Maybe it's a relationship that you're concerned about. Maybe somebody who needs to know Jesus in your life. Whatever it is, the most important part of our time is where we go before God together. And we do that at the end of every service. But they're gonna be down here at every campus, but Summit Church at all of our campuses. If you need to pray, you come down. But otherwise, we will, Lord willing, see you next week. Summit Church, you are sent.